Thank you, Josh. Thanks for the rest of our team. And I want to extend and continue on, at least hopefully someone this morning has said good morning to you, and I want to welcome you to worship, where we declare the excellencies of God together. The things that we declare are true of Him actually make us what we are. And so this matters massively. I don't know how you think you got to be in this place this morning, either invitation or rote habit or obligation or sheer grit and determination, whatever it might be, hear the word of the Lord. God loves you. God sees you, you, and he is for you. And that will never, ever, ever not be the case. So as that, as a baseline as a sort of starting out foundation, I want to invite us to continue this morning in our sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians. I don't know what you think about when you think about heaven. Maybe you don't allow yourself to have that kind of experience where you just allow your your sanctified imagination to ponder using the images that we are given in scripture. What What would heaven, what would it look like All the different attempts at designing it in a 2D image always seem to fall short. What would it look like? What would it, what is, what does heaven taste like and and smell like? What is the presence of God most high? What is it, what does it sound like to be in that kind of rapturous joy and beauty and sweetness and love? Well, I, I could tell you, but I felt like maybe better I would ask for some help. So I'm going to ask my friend, Laurel Van Dyke, if you would come up here, Laurel. Why don't, why don't you tell us what it sounds like? First Corinthians 13, English Standard Version. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And... If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I am nothing. If I give love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at a wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these, it's love. Full disclosure, 
I found out that was going to be a possibility, and as James and I said, I got real, real sweaty from the eyes. <laughs> Just sweat and sweat and sweat right out of the eyes there. Thank you, Laurel. Amazing. Amazing. We, uh, we say it all the time, the children are not the future of our church. The children are our future church in all eternity because our children are our church now. That little spirit-indwelled person gifted by God, indwelled by the Spirit, in Christ, loved by the Father. And it's so wonderful to get to see that. And to say, don't, that, little, that little tinge that you got, that little feeling of, oh, that is so sweet. Okay, now just take that and multiply it by like a gajillion. And that sweetness, that, that love, that unabashed, unmitigated love, that's sort of the aesthetic, that's sort of the, the texture and the culture of heaven. And so it is supposed to be the thing that we do here and now. That's the purpose of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so in the middle of this lengthy section of 1 Corinthians, there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of conversation, a lot of argumentation back and forth between Paul and these people. But our big idea comes right out of what Laurel just recited for us. And it goes like this. Love is the language of the kingdom. Love is to be the thing that resembles, reflects the very presence, the peace, the people of God. Love is the language of the kingdom. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, this is a familiar passage for a lot of us. Perhaps you even had it read at your wedding or you've been to a wedding where this was read, but I promise you, the Apostle Paul did not merely write something so that he could supply some content for the Hallmark Company. This is not merely a passage to be read at a wedding. Although it's a perfect place for this passage to be used, there's a lot more going on here. For starters, I want to remind you that we're in 1 Corinthians, uh, this sermon series, and we have been since early September of last year because this church was experiencing all kinds of fractions and factions and schisms and isms and cliques and icks. And so Paul's writing from Ephesus, the 16-chapter letter to say, hey, listen, so much is at stake for you to just, eh, whatever. There must be some intentionality. There must be some direction. There must be some leadership because your church is out of order. It is exercising according to chaos rather than according to cosmos, order, where Christ teaches the disciples to pray when we are supposed to say his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The fundamental arterial system for all that is in fact love. Paul wants so desperately for them then and us now to experience unity, not uniformity, unity in diversity for the purpose of maturity, that we would all continue to grow up into the people and the persons that God created us to be. Now, this chapter falls right in the middle of this lengthy section, chapters 11 through 14, where Paul has to say again and again and again in multi-faceted ways that the church needs to get in order, not just on a Sunday morning and an assembly context, but between the Sundays, that the church was operating more like the world than the kingdom of heaven from which it comes. Can that happen? Don't answer. Yeah, it, it, it can. And so we have to be ever vigilant we have to be very, very cautious, prayerful, and scripturally soaked to ensure that we do not begin to behave merely like our confines or context, that we behave more like the kingdom of heaven that has come and that is as yet coming. 
Now, he's given them chapter 11. Chapter 12 was a very specific chapter about all the spiritual gifts and dealing with tongues and all those things. Chapter 14, 40 verses dealing with tongues. Oh, Annie, get your gun. It's gonna be a fun next couple weeks as we spend a couple weeks in chapter 14 and I get the opportunity to pretty much anger everybody in the room. Woohoo! But today, we have this chapter 13. Only 13 verses, made so sweet, again, by Laurel's recitation of the chapter. And so a lot of people have thought, well, this is a weird deal. Why does he stick this in there then? What's going on? Some people have thought, okay, well, this is probably a hymn that Paul wrote for them to help them synthesize their doctrine, all the things that he had taught them. Perhaps this was a hymn that Paul taught them while he was there for 18 months. And now four years-ish later, he drops it back in to remind them, don't you remember the song? Don't you remember the song? There's a rhythmic um, literary technique when we set things to music that we can remember things. that they, Oh, it brings to mind. That's possible. But I don't want it to diminish the centrality of the doctrine and the theology and the teaching that Paul is doing. Others have said, no, Paul's actually super way more genius than that. He's dropping in what's called an encomium. Don't worry about that. It's a Greek literary tool that as you were making a letter, you would drop in a sort of a poetic encomium as a, as a praise of the person to whom you were writing or about whom you were writing. Very possible. I tend to think it's probably a little bit of both. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul decides to rise up out of a little bit of just the straight line dogma of doctrine. And he goes into this wonderfully beautiful, poetic, almost lyrical verse talking about love, which is the language of the kingdom. So I'm gonna start reading back through this. We're talking about love. Now, I wanna make sure we all understand. I think we probably are familiar with this. When I say love, uh, the Greek New Testament has three, maybe four different words for love. Hebrew has three. We're talking about that special, specific word, agape. Agape is massively central. It is love for the sake of another. Often, an unrequited love that wants the other person's highest possible good, even above that of the one who is loving. This agape love, it conveys worth. We will always act on what we deem worthy. We can't not. One of the, one of the primary consternations in this church at Corinth was the misapplication of the use of tongues, either marvelous or mysterious. Angelic tongues are actually known foreign languages from all over the world. And so Paul's going to start off right at the issue. It's not just about love. He's correcting an error there in the congregation. So chapter 13 We'll walk back through this very briefly. Verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Now this is hyperbole. This is not the text that you want to use to try to confirm or defend that there actually are angelic tongues. There may be, we'll talk about that in chapter 14. This is not that tongue. This is exaggeration. This is over-expressiveness. We know that because in a moment, he's also going to say, or if I have the faith to remove mountains. Nobody was sitting in Corinth removing mountains either by faith or any other mechanism, right? So this is hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to get his point across. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. These are all the things that love is not. No matter how expressive or sensational or attention garnering I might be, if it is not done from the posture and the perspective and the place of love, then it's merely 
an irritating amber alert sound going off right in the middle of the most serious, uh, dark kind of thing. It's just an interruption. What was intended to build and bolster and bless has only damaged and dented. So Paul says, no, if you're doing that, and they were, then you're actually doing damage. You are the outpost of the coming kingdom that has come and will come again, and you're doing damage one to another and to those on the outside. What's going on in Corinth can happen in churches all the time. There were cliques, as I mentioned. There were some groups that were saying, hey, we're the more spiritual group. We're expressing ourselves in all these different uh, sensational giftings and experiential occurrences. There were some over here that were doing these kinds of things. There were some over here that were doing these kinds of things. And that's fine. That's a nice quilt of a church until this group starts to say, well, we're better than this group. And then the church begins to really crack and it begins to fall apart. So Paul's got to address this. If I do all these things, if I speak with the tongues of men, foreign known languages from all over the world or of angels, but I'm not loving it, I'm not doing it for everybody else, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Verse two, he says, if I have prophecy or if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith, wow, you'd really be something but that's hyperbole, that's impossible. You could memorize the Bible, both Testaments, in every known language, including the original Hebrew and Greek, and you would still not know everything there is to know about God. You, you will never have all knowledge, you will never have the prophetic power to know all the mysteries ever. God's infinite, we can't infinitely or utterly know an infinite God, and so this is hyperbole. If I have all the prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, Paul's referring to the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 17, 20, when he says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, go jump in a lake, and the mountain will. Have y'all tried that? It's never worked for me. Now, some might say, well, you grew up in the pain handle. There was no mountains to jump and have jump in the, in the lake. I get that. It's, it's, it's a hyperbolic expression. It, it's in faith in God and his Messiah. Watch what he can do, and will do. And so Paul picks up on that. But if you have all of this faith, you believe unabashedly, the verse continues, however, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I'm like, I don't even occupy space. I don't even consume uh, time. I'm nothing if it's not done in, with, and from the context of love. Verse three, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned. Okay, so now we're talking about that sort of debatable fourth word for love, charity. If I give my stuff away, if I serve actively, even if I practice self-sacrifice by immolation, by being burned. We have a sign-up sheet for that in the foyer, by the way. You're welcome to either that or bring a meal to our student ministry. You can choose. It's one of the two. Even if you were to go to the ultimate sacrifice, but you're not doing so from the posture, the perspective of love, you gain nothing. Why does Paul say that? There is no reward. You did it for the applause, the acknowledgement, the appreciation, the attention, and the affection of others. You got it. It's over. It's a wisp. It no longer has any meaning. You will not stand before your father and say, well done, because you did it not out of love. Now, this should automatically be tickling all of our souls going, well, wait, have I ever really done anything 100% selflessly and out of love? Let me help. No, 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 not even close. But there is grace. 
and there is growth and there is God's glory and we ever increasingly grow into those kinds of people and you know some of them, I hope and trust. You've been around some of them where they just seem to have a spiritual gravity where when you're near them, you just kind of lean in and you... This person has so much more walked with Jesus. He, he looks like Jesus. He smells like Jesus. He sounds like Jesus. He thinks like Jesus. He talks like Jesus. He loves like Jesus. He relates like Jesus. Ah, this guy, this lady, wow. That's what Paul says we are to be intentionally about, not elevating ourself or our group above that of any other. So if I deliver my body, even to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. And then super briefly here, Paul, from verses four through seven, is gonna give us 14 facets of this precious stone that is love. 14 of them, depending on how you translate or interpret it, seven of which are positive, seven of which are negative. In other words, love is a good thing in this way. Love is not that bad thing. 14 of them. I'm just gonna walk them through very, very briefly, explain them super quick, and then we're gonna move right on through. Love is patient. The term is makruthumia. Love does not retaliate. Love is willing to, for the worth of the other person, both to God and to self and to the group, because of that individual or that group of people's worth, I am willing to suffer a wrong, a suffering, a thumia, a trouble, a a tribulation, and not retaliate. I will instead practice the fine art and the discipline of taking it into myself and then very purposefully, very really, balling it up, bundling it up, and hurling it violently at the cross of Christ. You take this. It was a wrong done me in thought or word or deed. It was wrong to me, and I'm going to take it, and I'm going to ball it up, and I'm going to realize this has caused injury, and then I throw it at Jesus with all my might. Maybe some of you know how to do that. Maybe some of you never have. And if all you ever do is retaliate, that's not love. If all you ever do is suppress and repress, I want you to know there's a condition called hypertension and goiter that will begin to happen. It has to come out of you and Jesus can take it. Love is patient, great suffering, not ever wanting to retaliate. Love, moving on, acts kindly. It's a different verb tense. Love acts kindly. Love takes the good that is in you because of the indwelling spirit. It weaponizes it and it aims it at somebody. Is is that your life? Not just being nice. Oh no, 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 no. We're talking about taking who and what you are in Christ aiming it into a rocket of goodness, of blessing, aiming it at somebody who doesn't even see it coming, whoosh, right on. (laughs) That's acting with kindness. Love acts kindly. That's how we are to be characterized. Love does not envy. Love does not want for somebody else to not have that good thing or not have that good experience. Can I put it in even more practical, tactical terms? Love of one another means I don't see a brother who has a wonderful wife and think, well, why has he got such a great wife? And I should, no, that's not love. That's idolatry. It's the worship of self. It's instead having the intentional posture, perspective, practice of saying, 
Praise God, you have given him to her. You've given her to him. And am I the kind of husband that my wife deserves? Short answer, no, don't answer. Yeah, that's right. Does not envy, does not want someone else's lessening or my increase. That's not what love is. Love does not boast. Love does not declare its own excellencies. People who boast, generally speaking, feel small. They feel marginalized. They feel non-central. They feel unseen and unfelt. And so a boasting is an attempt to get everyone else's attention to please fill the void of my own insecurity and my own feeling of weightlessness and worthlessness. That's not what love is. You know why? Because love understands that I am loved, fully seen, felt, I am fully marshaled by the person of God who loves me, sees me, and is for me. And so love has no need of boasting. It's always aimed at the other. It is not arrogant. I love this word. This word only happens seven times in the New Testament. Six of them is in Corinthians. It's got this physiao. It's got this idea of being puffed up. Lots of surface area, no innards. It's just, you're, you're just a big bloated gas bomb. You think more highly of yourself than you ought. Everyone kind of knows, like, oh, there comes Gassy. Awesome. You're not good to anybody. Love is not arrogant. Love has an accurate assessment of self. Love sees the self the way God sees the self. Love is not rude. Probably to nuance it, love is not crude. Love would never shame anybody else for my own personal gain. That's not love. It does not insist on getting its own way. Oh, that's a big one. Because of the gospel, I increasingly become the kind of person who does not expect to get my way. And when, not if, when I don't get my way, it neither surprises me, nor offends me, nor has any control over me. That's because we are to operate out of love. I don't operate as though I am entitled to anything other than the lake of fire. That's what love builds into us. It is the language of the kingdom. It is not irritable. It doesn't have a short fuse or a hair trigger. It is not just ready to launch. It is patient, you might say. Not ready to launch or to, to retaliate. Or resentful. It doesn't keep a long list of ills. Now remember, we're not just talking about your marriage because right now you're trying to elbow your spouse. I see you. No, no, no. We're talking about that in a, in a microcosm. But we're talking about the church. Love is not resentful. It doesn't keep record of wrong so that I can grow this seed of bitterness and this bitterness becomes the acid that completely infiltrates my entire vascular system of my soul. And so that four years later, I'm still angry about it and you have no idea that I even exist. Love is not resentful. Love, whatever ill or harm, bundles it up and hurls it at the cross of Christ, sometimes with great volume. He can handle it. So love is not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It takes no pleasure in the pain or suffering or, or falling of anybody else, even someone who is perceived to be an enemy, but rejoices with the truth. What is truth? Truth is reality from God's perspective. It rejoices that God sees you and God sees you in a certain way. And I rejoice that there are others who are seeing you the way God sees you and that you, more importantly, are seeing you the way God sees you. 
rejoices in the things that are true that line up with God's perspective of reality. So I just want to say as emphatically as I can, can you go and live your truth? Absolutely, as long as it's congruent with God's. If it's not, you're wrong. I didn't, I'm not God, take it up with him. Is reality from his perspective. And we rejoice in the way God sees and, ex- and exists in the world. Love bears all things. It endures all things. Kind of a combo on that one. It, it stands up under the pressure. It abides under burden. It bears all things. It puts up with. It does not, again, retaliate. It deals with it because of a proper perspective. It believes all things. Now, clearly in this context, this final little passage, doesn't mean it believes errors and lies and fairy tales and heresies. No, it's got the idea of trusting. Love believes, it trusts, even when there is evidence to the contrary. I know some of you are like, yeah, but you don't understand. She does the thing and I can't trust her or he does the stuff and I can't trust him. Love believes all things, trusts to forge that relationship, to increase the nobility and the dignity of the other, willing to risk being hurt yet again, because for that, there is the cross of Christ. Love believes all things, hopes all things. Love understands that there is more to come, that this life, this age, this status is not all there is. Hope is a confident and certain expectation of something good in the future. So no matter how it is right now, love says there's coming a time when it will be utter. There's coming a time when every person in this room will be removed from their sin, their fallenness, their fear, their uncertainty, their doubt, their animosity, and their aggression. There's coming a time. We have the opportunity to live in that way now. Because I, I want you to look around. Now that the lights are on, I want you to look around. The people that are here, you will never not know for trillions and trillions of years. So you might as well get used to Doug now, okay? You'll never, ever not know him. Love hopes all things. What's it gonna be like to hang out with my guy, Doug, in a million years? For a million years, Oh, one of us will. It won't be you, Jack. But to think of one another that way, love hopes all things. This ain't all there is. This isn't all there will be. There will be more and more and more. Love hopes all things. It endures all things. As we said, it stands up under. And then we have the durations. Very quickly, verse eight, love never ends. It persists on and on. As for prophecies, the declarations of the true things about God, they will pass away. Or the New American Standard, they will be done away with. Something will happen to them, they will be concluded. As for tongues, they will cease. Now, I'm so glad this translation does this correctly. It's the same verb, but in a different tense. Prophecies will be done away with. Something's going to act upon them and they will be done away with. Tongues will cease. Of their own volition, they will simply run out of juice or steam or lead in the pencil. They will just conclude. Paul was absolutely under the assumption that Christ was going to return in his lifetime. And so he believed that tongues would cease even before Christ returned in Paul's own lifetime. Prophecies, they'll be done away with. Tongues, they'll just stop on their own organically. Knowledge, it will pass away. 
those things will no longer be necessary. I will no longer, this is such good news for you, hear the gospel. I will no longer have a cause to preach. There will be nothing else that you need to be told. You'll just, I'll be preaching, like, open your Bibles. You're like, shh, he's right there. He's right there. He smells terrific. You should have his fish. But, but I got some new insight on Romans. Shush, there's Paul right there. We don't need you to tell us. He's right there. Shut up, have some fish. Because in heaven, we all speak with a Jewish accent. <laughs> Knowledge will be done away with. Prophecies will be done away with. Tongues will run out of steam on their own. And Paul thought it would happen very soon. Now, granted, he didn't give us a whole lot of time stamping on that. That's okay. For that, we have chapter 14. For the next two weeks, 40 verses, we'll talk exclusively about languages and all that that means. But love never ends. Prophecies, they pass away. Tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Notice that one of those got left off doesn't say we now do tongues in part. That's already in Paul's mind truncated. It's already concluded and ceased and stopped being in play. But when the perfect comes, now that's vexed people for, carry the one, 2,000 years. What is the perfect? The, the, the teleos, the completion, the ultimate. For centuries, people just assumed that it meant the closure, the completion of the canon of Scripture. Almost certainly not. It almost certainly has to mean, because of the context, the coming again of Christ the culmination of the church age. When Christ returns, there's no more need for knowledge for prophecies. Tongues will have already ceased, Paul says. But we will continue to prophesy, that is, declare the excellencies of God, to, to learn things, the, the deep things of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to God. He alone knows. But the revealed things belong to us and our children forever so that we may do his will. Those things will continue until such time as the perfect, the teleos, the end of the age occurs and Christ returns. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That which was not partial tongues will have already passed away, Paul says. And then he shifts gears and goes one more illustration to make the point to sort of uh, admonish and also encourage this church in Corinth then and our context now. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I was young. I was two years old. I said really incredible things like gaga. But if I'm a 45-year-old sitting in a board meeting in downtown Dallas and I say gaga, that's shameful. It's what they were doing. They had been in church for at least four years, had had the apostle there for 18 months, and they were still running around going, go, go, ga, ga, and I'm more spiritual than you because you're not speaking baby gibberish. But when you're a child, you, of course you speak like a child, but now grow up, grow out, grow on. He says, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. All of those early church building blocks that were, yes, used to edify the congregation. But when I grow, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. Now, I love that Paul does this. He had been in Corinth for 18 months. He knew Corinth was a Roman colony, recently rebuilt, gleaming marble, and they were famous in the empire for their bronze mirrors. Everywhere you went in Corinth, there was a place for you to stop and take a look. There we go. Now, it's a bronze mirror. It's not the silver oxide mirrors that we have today, so it's a dim reflection. It's not complete. It's not exactly accurate, and it's probably a little bit funhousey, or at least the ones in my house are still a little bit funhousey. I don't know what's going on with those. There we see dimly, we see an incomplete image. 
We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. God fully knows me now. There will come a time I will fully know as well. So he says, now faith, hope, and love abide. They exist now. But three, but the, uh, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith will be completed The object of our faith is love. Who God is, what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. The content of our hope is love. We will see him as he is and we shall be like him. But the greatest of these is love. It is the aesthetic of the kingdom that continues. Love is the language of the kingdom. So let me just give three super brief principles here and we'll, uh, four very, very quick principles and we'll be done. Number one, love covers a multitude of sins. Now I'm cheating. I stole that one from 1 Peter because they're saying the same thing because it's in the Bible. Love covers a multitude of sins. Not that it atones for sin, not that it takes away my sin, but it handles all of the cracks in the wall. Love is the mortar between the bricks that makes the, the temple, the abode of the dwelling place of God in this age. All of the stuff that might seem to irritate, might seem to innervate, but if I love you, if your worth increases in my heart and mind and soul, then those little things actually become precious, not irritating. Love covers a multitude of sins. When those things occur, we've been given the greatest gift to dismantle and disarm that ticking time bomb. We simply love one another. Some of you, I have gotten the privilege of doing your wedding ceremony, and you've heard something similar to this. You will never, ever, ever discover something about somebody in this church that God does not already know, has not already placed on his son and applied it to his death. So of all the things you and I get to do together in our marriages, in our parenting, in our community, in our church, judging one another isn't one of those things. It's already finished. Loving one another is. Fighting for one another's faith. That's who we get to be. That's what we are called to do. Love is the language of the kingdom. Secondly, love now like you will in eternity. Already. Love now like you will in all eternity. We say it all the time, but probably, perhaps, not often enough. We are from the future, living in the present because of what God did in Christ in the past. He made a way for the as-yet-to-come kingdom by stretching it back into our time and space, giving the Holy Spirit to indwell every believer, a manifestation of the person of the Spirit himself. The purpose of that Spirit, yes, of course, is to glorify the Father and the Son, but the purpose of the Spirit is that that Spirit in Jeff would be so energized to love Joe and Joe love Jeff and, and above and beyond their own human creativity and energy and vigor that the Spirit of God is loving those people in and through you if you and I will volitionally allow and want for that to happen. The synergistic effect of one plus one ends up equaling like six this I don't even have to pray about. Is God's plan for your life? It's that big of a deal. Third, love like your Lord is the only one that knows. Not to try to get attention, not so that someone will see, so that you get accolades, so that the Tyler paper does a story on you. Yay. But as though Christ is present by his spirit, because he actually is 
It's an expression of your faith. I knew the lights were coming back on. I kept my microphone on. Love one another as though Christ is present because he is. Live in anticipation of a heavenly reward, not merely being those alleged believers who are trying to slog out some existence until they finally die and go to heaven and their spouse gets all the insurance. That's no way to live. Live with aggression. Weaponize your kindness now. Fourth point, love is how the world of chaos is wooed into Christ's cosmos. The whole world, y'all, is terrified. Have you noticed? And the flickering pixels with which we consume our minds are not helping. The world is terrified. They want to be known. They want to know. They want to have community and security and acceptance and love. And Jesus said in John 15, and they will know you are my disciples by your Bible trivia. Wait, that's a bad translation. It doesn't say that. They will know you are my disciples by how you vote. No, that's not in there either. They will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. That is to be the attraction, the gravitational pull of a dark and dying world into this community of love and joy and peace. Love is the language of the kingdom. All of which Paul intends, I am convinced, having never met the man. He wants to draw our gaze, our hearts, affection, our minds, attention back to Jesus. And so I want to read the passage again, not as well as Laurel recited it, but I want to read the passage again the way I think Paul has in mind as he personifies love. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13, slightly nuanced. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy nor boast. Jesus was never arrogant nor crude. Jesus did not insist on getting his own way. Jesus was not irritable or resentful. Jesus is, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. He hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Jesus is love. And he is the language of the kingdom. And so may we be fluent in the love of God in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the morning, for the opportunity to undergo distraction. Thank you for your replenishing of power. I pray that you would do that not just with electricity, but by your Spirit's presence as well, that you would continue to do your work in and through and from us. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who is in a sense yet in darkness, would you turn on the lights? Would you, Holy Spirit, illumine that soul to be persuaded that your son is who he says he is, that he did what he said he would do, and they can step out of darkness into light and out of death into life. And they would have the courage to speak with someone they know or love and trust about that. One of our pastors, one of our ministry leaders, an elder, a deacon, a friend, a family member, that they would not sit on that or suppress it or stuff it, but they would step into life. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us that during a season of all kinds of potential distractions, culturally, societally, that love is the language of the kingdom and help us to speak it more and more effusively, fervently, and fluently. 
We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.